and welcome to Rising. This just in, we have a stupendous show for you today. Brianna, let them know all about it. Well, Robbie, our Rising panel gets into how Liz Cheney is being received by her constituents and Democratic voters. And we have Stephen Simler breaking down a new bill that would tamp down the Pentagon's budget. Plus, Alan McLeod discusses why Twitter is recruiting employees from the FBI. But first, today, President Biden is expected to urge Congress to temporarily suspend the gas tax for the rest of the summer, according to sources familiar with the plan. The president's ask will lift the current 18 cents a gallon tax to provide some relief, but obviously don't expect uh, massive savings. The average driver of large SUVs would only save about $4.60 a week, according to Gas Buddy. And Gas Buddy's the expert. So while this may gather bipartisan support, it won't make a huge dent at the pump for consumers. Um, the more I learn about this, this is obviously not an area of expertise for me, but my colleague at Reason Magazine, Christian Britschke, uh, who's very smart, wrote a piece saying that he didn't like this idea, even from the libertarian perspective, because while we generally hate all taxes and there should be no taxes and probably no government as well, uh, the, the gas tax comes is, is, more, is closer to a, a user charge. Because, so the, the gas tax goes to pay for the roads that people mm -hmm. who are driving are using. So it's, it's almost like a kind of just toll for using the road in mm -hmm. some sense. It is better for people in general. People who use a government service should be the one paying for it. Not everyone is as close I want to get to things. So... We can, so if non-drivers subsidizing drivers paying for roads is a, is a worse outcome. So people who drive on roads should be the ones paying for them would be my, would well, be my criticism of this policy. You know, ideologically, I'm going to disagree with you on that. However, you know, what's frustrating from my perspective is that it's such a marginal on the fringe policy when you're looking at people who are facing such overwhelming costs these days. And so it does feel like this is the limit of the American imagination. In fact, this is going to be the subject of my radar later today. But it is frustrating that when you see other kinds of interventions being taken advantage of in different parts of the world that are obviously all experiencing these same high gas prices, none of that is even on the, on the tip of the tongue of even the most far left uh, American official. And even this gas tax holiday is controversial. You, we talked a little bit yesterday about Jennifer Granholm saying that she wasn't, you know, entirely sure it was a good idea because it, you know, goes to the funding of, of roads and the infrastructure that Biden has been focused on. You have people in Congress on both sides of the aisle who are resisting this. We have corporations speaking out against it. I think I saw uh, it was the, um, the Target CEO coming out against some of these uh, Biden uh, uh, interventions, even though they are very meager. And on the other side of this, uh, the things that people are suggesting in the alternative, including a lot of conservatives, either are being pursued by Joe Biden, much to my chagrin as a leftist, I have to say, because of the environmental consequences. But Biden is has opened up drilling earlier this spring. He is trying to encourage oil companies to open up refineries that cut during that, that shut down during COVID because we have a lot of American oil. We just don't have the ability to refine it into the gas that's needed for cars. All of this stuff is going on, but refineries are refusing to open uh, because they don't see the profit in doing so. They see electric cars kind of ending the reign of the profitability there. Besides which, even if they did, the tail on a lot of these interventions actually having an effect on the market is three, five years out or more. So 
everyone I think is missing the ball here about what the slate of policies are that can meaningfully make a difference, especially from a Democratic Party perspective before midterms. Yeah. And if we don't need uh, if we don't need to pay this tax and we still get enough money somehow to keep the roads in good shape, I mean, the roads are in terrible shape in lots of places. I'm from Michigan. Yeah. Ro- act- Jennifer Granholm, former governor of my state, yeah. ro- the road conditions in Michigan, terrible. The road conditions just tend to be very bad in, in states that get hit with terrible winter weather, mm. I think. Um, but uh, if we can fix or not fix the roads with that, why do we have the tax at all? Let's just not have any tax ever. Well, <laughs> by the way, speaking of Michigan... Uh, Gretchen Whitmer, the current governor, uh, yes. she was Kidnapping actually... Kidnapping victim. See the air quotes I'm putting around well, that? Whitmer was actually opposed to a gas tax when it came up locally in Michigan before she now is supporting uh, Joe Biden with his national effort. Not sure what the politics are of that there, but I saw some conservatives criticizing her for what they perceive to be a flip-flop. So again, I don't know what the point is of taking this much political heat over... 18 cents a gallon. Again, I don't want to yeah. minimize that because people are really stretched very thin and every little bit helps. And I think it is heartening to see someone trying to do something. But honestly, at this stage, it does seem like that something is almost insultingly meager. Mm. Well, meanwhile, more and more economists are predicting a recession. Goldman Sachs said that the risk of recession has doubled since the Fed's most recent interest rate hike and now predicts a 30 percent chance of recession in the next year. The risk grows to nearly 50% over a two-year period. According to results from the latest CNBC CFO Council survey, 68% of chief financial officers say a recession will occur during the first half of 2023. And get this, not one of the CFOs surveyed thinks the economy will avoid a recession. The White House, however, still refusing to acknowledge the impending financial fallout and right now, we don't see a recession right now. That is not, we're not in a recession right now. Uh, right now, we're in a transition where we, we, will, we are uh, going to go into a place of stable and steady growth, and that's going to be, uh, that's, that's going to be our focus. I mean, that's just wishful, naive well, thinking. It's, it's, it's technically it's her job. true, right? It's, it's that double speak. Right now, we're not, right now in, we're a, not in a recession. recession. Yes. Okay, well, thank you. But is that what anyone said? Right Did now? anyone ask her and say, are we in a recession now? No. Of course not. They said, are we going to be in a recession? Said, well, we're not in a recession of now. Of course not. And delusionally p- p- uh, pointing to some kind of good numbers that exist right now in this second, while people are obviously planning for bad numbers down the line. I mean, the reason why oil price- prices are so high, it's not because the cost per barrel of oil is at historic highs. There's a, a gap there because of the futures markets and people anticipating delays right. down the line. So all of this is just such a smoke and mirrors. That's, that does not that's the exact the kind of evasiveness that would have, if it was a Trump spokesperson doing it, or just a Republican spokesperson in general, that would have generated mainstream media headline after headline after headline about the the, the blatant dishonesty, the lying, yeah. the lying of the administration to say, are, are, do you think we're going to be, are, everybody says we're going to have a recession. You know, what does what the administration think? Well, we're not in a recession now. That would have, that would have the just, you know, the, the, the fact checkers would have sprung into action. Yeah, I think... Now, but because it's a Democratic administration, it falls to us. I, I, falls to us. <laughs> well, I'm glad we're on the job, Robbie. <laughs> uh, Larry Summers, a frequent confidant to Biden, says the unemployment rate would need to rise above 5% for a sustained period in order to curb inflation, which would mean devastation for millions of American workers. 95% of Americans surveyed by Numerator said that inflation is hitting them hard and that they are budgeting to make ends meet, while 66% said that they are cutting back on non-essential spending to mitigate costs. 
while 20% are worried about how to make it. According to the Fed, consumer debt is approaching a record-breaking $16 trillion. Mm. Not good. Not good. No. And this is what I mean about the size of the intervention needing to match the gravity of the problem. You have these CFOs anticipating and no, I, accurately, I think, that there's going to be a recession at the same time. That I'm sorry, there's some asymmetry in the conversation about how they've been making money. Their corporations have been making hand, money making money rather hand over fist. They received the bulk of the bailouts uh, in 2020. Mm-hmm. And now they're kind of sitting back, crossing their arms and saying, this is what the economy is That's going to That's why the do. bailouts were always terrible ideas. Always bad. We should never do them. It's going back to going back to TARP. Uh, the auto bailouts, uh, the airline bailouts during the pandemic were just obscene and absurd and stupid. And, you know, how much of that money was just given as golden parachutes to executives anyway? Yeah, I would argue that if you're going to spend enough money to bail out a company, more money than it would cost to buy the company. Right, you want the, the government, government to just buy the company. getting in the business of it. If you're going to pay all that money, you should at least get a return on your investment. I mean, some of these, no? well, while I don't agree with that, some of these sectors are so, uh, were so flooded with, government money that it is that it is akin to being to being a state managed industry except there's a pass through to right. all the the private interests involved right. and so you might as well just get right it, in the it gets man. into this yeah yeah i i, I don't <laughs> i don't agree this is a good strategy but i i understand why when you have it when you have a specific industry that is so entangled with the state and then you can have very bad incentives when you when you're both pursuing profits, but also begging for handouts mm-hmm. when things don't. So that can incentivize riskier behavior because we're going to take risks, hoping to reap massive profits. And if it fails, we'll just have the government bail I us out. Right. That creates, that's the worst of both incentives. That's right. right? That's what's happening with student debt. And it happens all over the place. Yeah, right. It happens yeah. with student debt. Yeah. And we don't accept that in other countries, when we consider whether they're like sufficiently market economies, we look at, well, you know, how much, how, how much is the government involved in various sectors of the economy? Does our own financial system pass this? Pass this test as our does the auto system, etc. So it's uh, it's BS, BS. <laughs> but I look forward to hearing what's on your radar. Brianna, what's on your radar? Well, Robbie, it looks like Joe Biden's plan for dealing with inflation is to force millions of American workers into unemployment. This is not an exaggeration or a misrepresentation. The president met with former Treasury Secretary Larry Summers over the weekend, and he is publicly arguing that the U.S. needs a jobless rate over 5% for five years to ease inflation. We need two years of 7.5 unemployment or five years of 6% unemployment or one year of 10% unemployment, he explained in a speech in London on Monday. Now, if you're unsure of how to put that into perspective, just one month into the pandemic, America had a 14.7% unemployment rate, the worst since the Great Depression. But during the Great Recession in 2009, unemployment hit 10%. Most of us are old enough to remember that that was very, very bad. Americans are already struggling to afford basic goods. As inflation hit 8.6 last month, Gas prices are sky high and basic goods like meat are up 15% from last year. That's all old news. There are only two relevant questions to ask now. What caused this inflation spike and what to do about it? There are many contributing factors, but this isn't rocket science. Inflation happens when businesses raise prices. That's it, it's pretty simple. What someone in dispute is why they raise prices, when do they do it, can they help it, and is it their fault? 
The obvious reason businesses raise prices generally is profit. Corporations want to make money and they'll charge as much as they can as long as you're willing to pay. The only limit on how high corporations can raise prices is competition. This is why monopolies are so dangerous. No competition equals price gouging. And that's also why supply chain crises like the ones stimulated by the COVID pandemic have wreaked such havoc. When people have no alternative because there's scarcity across sectors, the sky's the limit for corporate gouging. Now it's important to ask why COVID has done so much damage to our supply, change, supply chains. The answer is that the big brains at elite consulting firms like McKinsey and Bain have spent the last 30 years advising American corporations to move overseas and abandon U.S. storage facilities that could have warehouse reserves on American soil, all to earn shareholders additional pennies on the dollar. As a result, when the supply chain was stressed by COVID shutdowns in China and other manufacturing centers around the world, America was caught on its knees, impotent and unable to protect itself. Similarly, when the U.S. decided to sanction Russia, one of the world's largest oil producers, it incentivized oil companies to raise prices in anticipation of scarcity, even though today the price of oil per barrel is nowhere near record highs. The key takeaway is this. Raising prices during scarcity is a choice made by corporations. The, the, the open question is whether it's a justifiable one. In this case, raising prices is not something they needed to do to stay afloat or to pay workers or to keep the economy going. I'm sympathetic to all of that. What's happening here isn't just profit, it's price gouging. That is raising prices at exactly the time when demand is high and profit is already guaranteed. While small businesses are struggling, big corporations aren't just surviving, they are thriving. In true corporatist fashion, the CEOs who indulged in the bad decision-making that got us in the supply chain mess have escaped unscathed. Billionaire wealth has risen more since COVID-19 began than it has in the last 14 years. The 10 richest men doubled their fortunes during the pandemic, while the incomes of 99% of humanity fell. Is your meat too expensive? Well, the guys who run the meatpacking corporation are eating well. Their profit margins jumped 300% during the pandemic. Is your gas expensive? Well, big oil has been making historic profits. The top five oil companies just raked in more than 35 billion in profit, all while you have been struggling to fill your car and get to work. These industries are making money despite the habit COVID has wreaked on the supply chain because they're passing the costs off to you. Remember, inflation, simply put, means higher prices on goods. And who's controlling the prices of goods? Not the government, not even Joe Biden. It's the CEOs who run these companies. Instead of tripling profit, meat companies could moderate prices and tell their shareholders that they're gonna earn the same as last year, not three times more. But in contemporary America, we've decided that maximizing profit is more important than Americans being able to afford food for their families or the gas they need to get to work. We've decided that greed is good and profit is king. But never forget, we used to be a proper country. In 1971, when America was facing runaway inflation, the GOP's own President Nixon took a stand for the American people. On August 15th of that year, he took to the airwaves to advocate for price controls and a wage freeze. 
The second indispensable element of the new prosperity is to stop the rise in the cost of living. One of the cruelest legacies of the artificial prosperity produced by war is inflation. Inflation robs every American, every one of you. The 20 million who are retired and living on fixed incomes, they are particularly hard hit. Homemakers find it harder than ever to balance the family budget. And 80 million American wage earners have been on a treadmill. For example, in the four war years between 1965 and 1969, your wage increases were completely eaten up by price increases. Your paychecks were higher, but you were no better off. We have made progress against the rise in the cost of living. From the high point of 6% a year in 1969, the rise in consumer prices has been cut to 4% in the first half of 1971. But just as is the case in our fight against unemployment, we can and we must do better than that. The time has come for decisive action, action that will break the vicious circle of spiraling prices and costs. I am today ordering a freeze on all prices and wages throughout the United States for a period of 90 days. In addition, I call upon corporations to extend the wage price freeze to all dividends. I have today appointed a cost of living council within the government. I have directed this council to work with leaders of labor and business to set up the proper mechanism for achieving continued price and wage stability after the 90-day freeze is over. That was Republican President Nixon implementing a price freeze and wage freeze for 90 days. It was only temporary. That was Republican President Richard Nixon noting that wage gains had been completely swallowed by cost increases and that it was his responsibility and corporations' responsibility to do something about it. Despite 2022 Americans experiencing fewer wage gains than mid-century Americans, along with record price increases, no one in government, even in the most far-left circles, is really talking about price controls. The absolute limit of the American imagination is a gas tax holiday. Now, a gas tax holiday would suspend the tax on gas, saving folks about 18 cents per gallon. Not a ton, but it's something. And even that has provoked the rage of CEOs like Target's Brian Cornell. He, like many conservatives, has attacked any effort to put money back in voters' pockets, favoring instead efforts to increase the supply of oil. But Biden, despite his promises to leftists like me and environmental groups, has already done that. In April, Biden opened up public land to dr drilling in order to bring down gas prices, even though any new drilling would take years, years to affect the supply of oil. Biden is pressuring oil refineries that closed during the pandemic to reopen. We have uh, gas uh, being made in this country on hand, but it's not refined into the kind of gas that we actually use for our cars. That's the problem. But those refineries are refusing despite record profits. Why? Well, even big oil CEOs see the end of fossil fuels in sight and don't think the profit margins are sufficient to justify getting back into the businesses that COVID closed. Just getting the equipment you need could take three years, explained energy economist Ed Hers in the Washington Post. Electric vehicles might already make up 20% of the car market by then. You could find yourself investing a bunch of cash to rebuild a refinery that may not be needed for long. 
even as they admit they have no solutions. Big oil execs are wringing their hands over accusations from the Biden administration that they are engaging in price gouging, which they are. Hit dogs will holler. <laughs> Biden needs a change in approach, said Chevron CEO, advocating a sit down with the administration. But it's not clear what approach is left beyond what Biden is already doing. Unless, of course, we're talking about doing or at least threatening to do what Republicans like Nixon once understood was right. Price controls. Now, if price controls are a bridge too far for you, we should take a look at least at what other countries are doing around the world. Cities across Europe have embraced free public transportation to help their citizens avoid the cost associated with driving their cars. For under $10, Germans will be able to travel on regional rail, bus, and subways all month. And in London, where transit workers realize exactly how essential their services really are, 400,000 rail workers have staged the largest rail strike in UK history. Yes, in countries not called America, politicians can't just coast on uh, working, get working class cred coming from pandering to workers in hard hats every four years. Workers elsewhere understand their value. So when inflation went up and wages remained stagnant, transit workers did what is unthinkable to so many American workers, demand to be paid their worth out of the profits being stolen for the very top. Now, Americans used to do this all the time. A post-World War II strike wave led to some of the most important labor protections and wage gains Americans have ever seen, including the mid-century prosperity so many people on both sides of the aisle reflect on nostalgically. Those rosy 1950s memories, they weren't gifted to mom and pop freely. They were fought for, hard. Because of that labor struggle, American workers back then earned 1 15th of what CEOs made. Now, after decades of weakened union power, it's 1 300th. But corporatists have convinced many Americans over the past several decades that fighting to be paid what you're worth is un-American, even scarier. It might be Marxist. Look at how the corporate media tried to smear this working class bloke leading the UK transit strike. Welcome back. Now, Mick Lynch, uh, who's the man leading the strike today for the RMT, is waiting for us at Euston Station. Mr. Lynch, good morning to you. It's going to be a busy day for you today. Um, can we just get one thing nailed to the wall before yeah. we get going here? Uh, you've been accused severally in the last few weeks of being a Marxist. It happened again last night. Uh, a backbench Tory MP said you were a Marxist with no interest in anything other than trying to tear down the government. Now, are you or are you not a Marxist? Because if you are a Marxist, then you're into revolution and into bringing down capitalism. So, are you or aren't you? <laughs> Richard, you do come up with the most remarkable twaddle sometimes, I've got I to say. Say, well, 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 yeah, I, I didn't, didn't say you were a Marxist. With, with I'm that saying that you're being accused of being a Marxist, and that's yeah, not twaddle. That's, that's called reporting. No, I'm not... <laughs> I'm, no, I'm, a, I'm not a Marxist. I'm an elected official of the RMT. I'm a working-class bloke leading a, a trade union dispute about jobs, pay and conditions of service. So it's got nothing to do with Marxism. It's all about this dispute. It's an industrial dispute, yes. and that's what it's all about. Absolutely. I'm, I, I, I emphasise I am not talking twaddle and accusing you of being a Marxist. I'm merely quoting people who are, including many of the newspapers. Well, that's what it sounds so, like to me. Well, well, I'm sorry if it did, but I don't think it was. Um, but anyway, to be absolutely clear, you are not a Marxist. Fine. <laughs> Love that guy. Lynch's focus and integrity are admirable, especially when you consider the conditions in America. As we experience a little bit of labour growth, after years of wage stagnation accompanied by a historic 
corporate profits, our politicians, on a bipartisan basis, are openly saying that the way to fix the economy is to create massive unemployment. It's unbelievable. Corporate vultures are pointing to the sliver of support extended to American families during COVID, the relief checks, as the reason for inflation, hoping we don't remember that no one benefited from the trillion dollar Trump bailout like the rich. You got a $1,200 check. Fabulous. Direct payments to Americans totaled about $250 billion in cost. Meanwhile, corporations got a multi-trillion dollar bailout. And while conditions were attached that were supposed to incentivize corporations to keep employees on the payroll and the economy going, these were often flagrantly ignored. It was a giveaway. But few Democrats and even fewer Republicans have any interest in holding these corporate bandits responsible for the spending that allegedly has caused inflation or the price gouging they're engaging in now. And don't even get me started on military spending, which never comes under any scrutiny in these uh, inflation conversations. Look, even if you think government spending was excessive, why the scrutiny on the $1,200 checks and not the $4 trillion corporate bailouts? Really, ask yourself. Our founding fathers understood the risks inherent to excessive wealth, concerned about private corporations competing with and undermining their new democracy. Early corporations were limited in how much money they could raise, how long they could exist, and what they could do. After all, governments issue corporate charters. The right to incorporate is a privilege granted by the state. The Founding Fathers understood that the fledgling nation couldn't build every road or sewer system and that private industry had a role, but that role was to serve the greater good of the American community. And fortunately, we've strayed so far from those ideas that politicians openly defend price gouging. James Madison described corporations as a, quote, necessary evil. He'd roll over in his grave to see a nation now abandoning those principles and worshiping Gordon Gecko. In summary, populists should remember to be suspicious of narratives that devalue the American worker and which apply no scrutiny to the corporations who got us into this mess. Corporations offshore jobs and distributed profits to shareholders instead of investing in supply chain integrity. And now they're using limited supply to extract even more wealth from an American labor force they no longer even want to employ. Populists should be skeptical of politicians on both sides of the aisle who took huge amounts of money from these same corporate interests and who consequently have little interest in holding them accountable. This is how we get milquetoast policies like a gas tax holiday instead of powerful interventions like Nixon's price freeze. And populists should notice who offers no solutions at all, just criticisms. This includes both oil companies like Chevron and conservative politicians who poo-poo the gas tax holiday while demanding interventions that Biden is already undertaking, like increasing oil drilling, despite, again, those interventions not having returns for years. It's all a bait and switch. It's time that we stop falling for it and start standing together in solidarity as workers. So quite a long radar it's a, there. It's Brianna. a long radar. I had a lot to say. Uh, you were uh, citing Nixon favorably on the price control. Yeah, look, the the point of the matter Those is Those are widely criticized they are, policies by they are, economists all across the political spectrum. I spoke to an economist last night uh, for my podcast and it'll be coming out on Thursday. And he was very open about the fact that there are pros and cons to price control measures and that they were, of course, criticized at the time. The point of the matter is that people at the time 
felt like there was a demand from the people to do something big and actually meaningful. And while a lot of conservatives say the government shouldn't be pick picking winners and losers, the reality is that a lot of the critics were losers that for once were not the, the winners that the government usually picks. So the government picks winners and losers all the time, but it's always corporations and elites. And when occasionally, occasionally somebody comes along and says, let's hand a little bit of a check to the American people. Let's prevent for a short time, a 90 day period, government, uh, for, uh, sorry, corporations rather from price gouging. Let's have a, a price uh, a, a, a excessive tax legislation like some progressives want right now. Like a thousand days, there were, there were lines, uh, no, shortages. The, the, gas, the gas lines were caused by geopolitical conflict the same way the gas lines now are caused no, by geopolitical conflict. But they're a always mix of things like now. No, it's 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 the exact same thing. Every single time something like this happens because of American interventionism, because of a uh, poor design by corporations in our administrative state, the ball gets dropped and it, it's left to the American people to pick up. And the people who get the bailouts are those who have well, the money. I agree. To Stop agitate bailing out the corporations. Stop bailing them out. I've said I've said that earlier today. I've said, I'll say it every day. Yes, no more bailouts for financial industry, airline industry. Absolutely, government should not pick winners or losers. It, it shouldn't just. It shouldn't pick different winners. It should get out of that game entirely. And I would disagree. I think that that's literally the game the government is in, and that's what our founding fathers established the corporation to do. They understood that the corporation should have a very limited scope. This wasn't a country founded so that corporations can make money. It was so that American people could have freedoms. Well, it and wasn't as, founded with any idea as, that the government would direct as, the behavior of corporations. And as FDR very famously said, the most popular president we've ever had, you cannot be free if you cannot eat. You cannot be free if you do not have a home. And that's the condition that Americans are living in today. That should be the focus of our policy, not wondering whether or not we're going to we're upset the, founders, the, the founders CEO had no, of no Chevron. vision for the federal government to do anything of the sort. We're talking about the, the very explicit dictates of the, of the founding fathers when it came to what the limits of the American corporation are. And that's what the subject of this radar is. The, it's the American corporation that caused this mess and that are continuing to profit from this mess. And the question should be whether or not we're going to listen to American corporations when they say we should have a handoff approach and instead attack the American worker to try to resolve this, or whether or not they should have to bear some of the burden as well. Well, thank you for that, Brianna. And I look forward to more Rising right after this. Last night, senators voted to speed up the passage of the bipartisan gun control bill, meaning it could be signed into law as early as next week. The bill includes tougher background checks for buyers under 21 and implements red flag laws to remove arms from people considered a threat. Senator Chris Murphy touted the bill, calling it the most significant piece of anti-gun legislation, uh, anti-gun violence legislation in nearly 30 years. The legislation tackles the boyfriend loophole, gives $11 billion towards the nation's mental health system, and invests $2 billion in school safety programs. Even Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell signaled his support for the bill on Tuesday, saying, quote, Our colleagues have put together a common-sense package of popular steps that will help make these horrifying incidents less likely while fully upholding the Second Amendment. Hmm. You know, even acknowledging that that's a possibility, that there is a such thing as go uh, common sense gun legislation that can help prevent tragedies that we, like the one we saw at Uvalde and also aren't Maybe. A, you know, a, a, a crucial threat to the heart of the Second Amendment feels like a win. I feel like we're not even in that conversational space much of the time. It's, it's, a, it's presumed that anything that we do at all is 
you know, at insufficiently high risk that the Second mm -hmm. Amendment is going to be imperiled? Well, look, I don't think uh, enhanced background checks infringe on the Second Amendment. That's fine uh, as, as long as you're able to eventually uh, purchase a weapon. I mean, they do, the, right? They, yeah. they do infringe, but as a society, well, we've decided that every law has pros and cons, costs, you know, uh, uh, balances. Right. The First Amendment, we have defamation, we have all kinds of rules that infringe upon the First Amendment. And that's what's so frustrating is that we, we have these binary conversations as though, you know, constitutional protections are absolute well, in a way that we don't treat them in any well, other context the psychology, except though, for... Defamation doesn't infringe on the First Amendment because the Supreme Court has said it doesn't, right? right? Well, I mean, it, it is right. tautological and it also speaks to how... Um, how this an activist court just decides what it's going to decide. A lot of liberals right now are very frustrated about a case that came down earlier this week that seems to show complete and utter disregard for the establishment clause. Uh, it has to do with religious school funding. All right, you know? we're going to talk about on, that on, later, on. later in the show. We, yeah, we so are going to disagree very words. much on that one. Um, I am a little uh, concerned with some of the red flag stuff. Uh, we've talked about it a lot on the show. Um, I, I think there's so so Governor Tom Wolf of Pennsylvania uh, tweeted this little infographic on how red flag laws work. And it has it has a person, uh, Jane, and then Jane is supposed to see she sees Randy, a social media contact, post photos of guns and cryptic messages. Jane calls the police to report the post. The police petition in court to temporarily remove Randy's guns. Uh, police provide evidence, and then the court takes away Randy's guns. So the inciting incident there is he posts photos of guns and cryptic messages. So that is, now we're violating the Second Amendment and the First Amendment because it's not, well, you don't lose your rights for posting cryptic messages. What does that even mean? Well, that's a cartoon infographic and not necessarily Well, I know, but this is what a, here's, a, here's what a governor of a blue state thinks should be the standard. Sure, but I think that when you look to the red flag laws that have been implemented in, in 19 states in the District of Columbia, most of which have been implemented without a lot of fanfare or pushback, people feel like there are sufficient due process protections in place. And to the extent that they're not, people can advocate for them to be, for the laws to be changed. Well, the Republicans but, are concerned that there are not sufficient due process. Well, then they should raise right. examples of those that are raised, specific but. and outside of the context of a, of a graphic. But the reality is we sat here at this desk and talked at length about how frustrating it was that the FBI saw mm -hmm. evidence that the Buffalo shooter was on a, on a rampage that was someone who should have eyes on them and had come to the attention of law enforcement, and yet they did nothing. And so the question is, do we believe that there is obviously a certain kind of activity that should demand closer scrutiny and others' activities that aren't? There, are, of course, are going to be times when that line is blurry, and I, too, am concerned that there could be overreaches there. But when we live in a world where we're swung far in the opposite direction, where law enforcement is made aware of potential or, or people, not potential bad actors, people who ultimately became bad actors and we see in retrospect mm -hmm. that they did nothing. It's hard for me to have that much fear about red flag laws as compared to the fear I have of actually being shot down in a, in a grocery store. Do you, have a, do you have a lot of fear about being shot down in a grocery store? I have more fear of that than I do red flag laws, yes. Well, okay, right. Yeah. You, <laughs> you mean, well, you don't have guns, so you're not afraid your guns are going to be taken away. Wrongly. Well, I, as a black American, to be honest, I'm pretty invested in the right to to own guns. I've, right. you know, I'm not from a gun owning family. Well, I've never personally had before, but I have been having a lot of conversations recently with my peers and other people in my life who are gun owners or veterans about 
go into a gun range. And so I, the, the idea that I don't have, I don't currently exercise a right means that I'm not personally invested in that right, I think isn't don't exactly you, fair. Don't you fear? Especially given the unique history that my people have had in this country and wanting to be adversaries. No, 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 absolutely. I, I, that's one of the main reasons I support the Second Amendment. Don't you feel that you know being harassed or mistreated or unfairly targeted by the police is more likely than being in a shooting incident in the grocery store? I, think, I would think I that's, think that's more gun, likely for me and probably even more so for you. Yeah, I think that black gun owners have that yeah. concern a great deal. But remember, I believe it was the issue with Philando Castile that he right, was absolutely. licensed to carry. He had a permit and he was shot dead in his car with a, his partner and a, her child in the back seat, regardless of warning the officer and being fully within his rights. Um, he was really gunned down as a crime of poverty. He was only pulled over because he had so many outstanding tickets for having a broken taillight that he couldn't afford to fix because he was a... Uh, you know, a, a chef at an elementary school, a cook at a, a, a local a local school. This is the country we live in. So I, I'm not. It was a horrible, horrible thing, and uh, everyone who supports Second Amendment, Second Amendment rights, uh, gun rights, should have condemned it. I condemned it. Uh, the NRA, I think, was a little slow on that one, and that was uh, a really a shame to see. Yeah. So the issue isn't whether or not I think we're. I, you know, I'm indifferent to the interests of protecting the rights of gun owners. The question has to be. What is, are the, what is the balancing test right. here? What are the countervailing interests? Because it's also the case that as much as I hypothetically, or many people in fact, want to protect their full, total, maximalist access to guns at all times, there are also 19 dead children in Uvalde, Texas. And either we care about preventing those kinds of things going forward, or we don't. We care about the dead people in Buffalo supermarket who, again, the shooter came to the attention of the police, and they did nothing, of, of law enforcement, and they did nothing. And we care about law enforcement being able to intervene or not. And again, even in the chart that you showed, that's a due process um, uh, pathway that gets triggered by the alert. Well, right, that people but are again, off to jail in there. messages. I don't trust the government uh, with, in terms of misinformation, harassment, all these task force, all this monitoring of people who are, who are crazy or unwell or, or wrong or is, start, is, uh, is getting a little uh, authoritarian and Orwellian. And officials are constantly signaling that they want more power to broadly criminalize dissent or, or views that they don't agree with or think, think are crazy, disinformation, etc. And I, I would worry that this would be one more uh, item in their toolkit for doing so. Well, look, Florida has a red flag law, Indiana, a lot of red states. So maybe it's worth looking at the wording that they use in those particular mm -hmm. states, which the Republican legislatures in those states have not objected to. Yeah. Well, we'll look into that more and we'll have a little bit more rising right after this. Republican Congresswoman Liz Cheney cautioned viewers who are tuning into the House Select Committee's investigation of the January 6th insurrection at the U.S. Capitol against being distracted by politics. Let's listen. I would urge all of those watching today to focus on the evidence the committee will present. Don't be distracted by politics. This is serious. We cannot let America become a nation of conspiracy theories and thug violence. Cheney, who is only one of two Republicans on the select committee and a fierce critic of Donald Trump, finds herself more alienated from the GOP as she fights for re-election in her home state of Wyoming, where she's had to turn to Democratic and independent voters for survival. Hmm. Here to discuss Cheney's fate and her potential appeal to Democratic voters are Rebecca Azur, journalist and co-host of Like It or Not, 
Amy Tarkanian, political strategist and former Nevada GOP chairwoman. Welcome to you both. Good morning. Thank you. All right, Amy, I, I've seen a lot of Democrats being really enthusiastic about Liz Cheney. How are Republicans feeling right now? <laughs> the complete opposite. They find her to be a nuisance, and I think she's probably going to end up losing her seat. In, 20, um, in 2020, she actually won her position, I think, by roughly 40%, which is really impressive. But polls are actually showing her now down by more than 30% to uh, Harriet Hagerman. And Harriet actually, which is interesting, was originally a Ted Cruz supporter in 2016, hmm. but now has the endorsement of President Trump. So I think Liz literally is banking on having crossover appeal. Uh, most likely, if she has Republican support, it's going to be Republicans who didn't support President Trump in the first place, because this January 6th uh, hearing, whatever you'd like to call it, because it's not really a hearing. There, there's no other opposing views that are allowed. Um, you, I think that's pretty much all she's going to get support wise. Yeah, we're trying to kind of figure out how much is the Republican Party still Trump's party. And, mm -hmm. you know, you can point to some signs, some of his some candidates he's endorsed, for instance, doing well, uh, beating their their opponents like uh, like, you know, in the Ohio Senate uh, primary Vance versus Mandel, um, Oz, very, very narrowly, just barely uh, Dr. Oz prevailing in Pennsylvania. At the same time, you know, he's. I think he's not he's not necessarily the so far out ahead if he's going to run uh, again. There's a, a flocking to DeSantis, for instance. Mm -hmm. But what there isn't is is a dedicated anti-Trump wing experiencing any success. You, you have to be you, you, you can't even really be neutral to Trump. You still have to be on board with Trump and with MAGA. You can be a different person, maybe. But I mean, that's what we're trying to figure out. What, what's your take on all this, Rebecca? Like, okay, so, you know, Cheney, um, Liz Cheney is Republican royalty. So it would be in her best benefit to uh, stick with Donald Trump, right? If she wants to be reelected, if she wants the GOP party to continue to back her. It's almost like right now, if you speak against Donald Trump being in the Republican party, uh, especially being at that level, but you, you're you're saying that you don't want to be a Republican. You don't go with Republican choices. You don't follow anything because Donald Trump is basically uh, the face of Republicans right now. Um, you know, even people still uh, calling him President Trump and he's former President Donald Trump, but they still see him in that light where he is still that big of a deal to the party. So listening and hearing uh, Cheney, uh, Liz Cheney, speak against him or denounce in this time is very interesting, especially since, you know, from 2017 to 2021, we've seen her back Trump positions. You know, 93% of the time she has supported Donald Trump, voted for Donald Trump. So now in this particular moment, hearing her speak against Donald Trump, denouncing him, uh, you know, it's uh, it's very interesting. But I think it'll, anybody who is wanting to stick Republican, stay Republican, should not uh, stray too far away from, um, you know, siding with Donald Trump. Well, and the other problem for Liz Cheney, Amy, is that she represents this older Republican Party, the Bush era Republican Party. Obviously, her dad is Dick Cheney, the former vice president, vice president under George W. Bush and a major advocate, uh, spokesperson, avatar of neoconservatism, of foreign policy interventionism, which is so out of fashion among 
obviously among the Republican base, but I, but it's never really been in fashion uh, with many, you know, very liberal Democrats or independent, independent-minded Democrats. You know, you have people, there are, there are people who, if she's trying to draw support from people outside the Republican base, I mean, she's going to, a lot of, a lot of those people you'd potentially need to get hate the Cheneys for, and, and the Bushes and what went on in, in Iraq war. That probably describes um, uh, us and a lot of our viewers. Uh, so there's, there's, you know, she, that's such a small, small group of people who are, you know, never Trump Republicans and and want to go back to Bush era foreign policy stuff. That's like that's like six people in the entire country, and then they don't they don't live in Wyoming. <laughs> no, they don't. But what's interesting about Wyoming is there's roughly a little under 200,000 registered Republicans versus 45,000 Democrats. So a primary win is a win. However, county by county, their rules are very interesting because uh, it's not uh, uniform statewide, but in certain areas, you can actually switch party affiliation back and forth. So this is going to be interesting to see actually how the votes do pan out. And I do think that if Democrats uh, want to vote for somebody maybe just out of spite of President Trump, then she'll, Liz Cheney will get those votes. But like I mentioned at the get-go, Liz is not going to get the real primary base Republican voters. She will mm-hmm. get those who are already anti-Trump and maybe uh, independents who just hadn't made up their mind or never really paid attention um, and, and are maybe more moderate leaning. Uh, you know, Liz, she very well could have kept her position if she just stayed out of the whole January 6th situation. When she says that this is this is important and it's it's not political, it is political. She has made this into political theater because when Speaker Pelosi decided to move forward with this committee and she did not allow the Republican choices, the real Republican choices of, of one of them being Jim Jordan and allowed both very, very vocal never Trumpers being Adam Kinzinger and Liz Cheney, we knew that this was going to be political theater from the get-go. And that's exactly what it's been. And that's why I think the majority of Republicans are ready to move on from this. Nobody was thrilled with the way January 6th went down. But I think just like what other people are saying with you know the 2020 elections being stolen or Democrats still claiming 2016 elections were stolen, people are ready to, to fix things and move on. You know, I mean, I think I agree with you. I, I think that it would have frankly benefited uh, Democrats and would have been a lot more illuminating and true to what the mood of the country is if people who were still talking about Trump stealing the election and were kind of standing behind that version of history were able to make their case at these hearings and have to confront and have a real um, kind of adversarial process about the facts that are being elucidated. But I want to go back to you, uh, Rebecca, because you mentioned uh, rightly that Liz Cheney did vote with uh, Donald Trump 93% of the time. What do you make of this kind of uh, breathless, gratuitous praise that she's getting from the Democratic Party? Some people even suggesting that she should run for president on the Democratic ticket. I think it's dumb. Listen, I'll say this um, before we start with that. 
you know, when Democrats were saying that Donald Trump stole the election, they did not, you know, nobody gathered and rallied together to go and, you know, hijack the Capitol. Like, you know, people didn't die, nothing like that. Here is what we're looking at, that they're saying, you know, Trump didn't win. January 6th, we can't just get over what happened. That was something that was serious, okay? That was, you know, we saw domestic terrorism right before us. So it's not something that we can just sleep on and get over or whatever the case may be. Now, um, listening to Liz Cheney uh, move forward and speak and denounce Donald Trump, it's like almost like a little too late. I don't think it's giving, it's, it doesn't give me she needs to run on the presidential ticket because all of that time that she could have said something before, um, you know, uh, from Charlottesville, uh, that situation, she could have spoke up. We haven't heard anything from that. It's good to hear people from that side speaking up because that's what we would want, right? But it's not so major to say, oh, goodness, this needs to be somebody who needs to run for president. I think that's kind of the hype that goes through social media. Somebody does something good, something something that they should have been doing, and it's like, oh, my God, this is so amazing. This is so presidential, and it's really not. It's just this person finally being on you know, the right side of things or telling the truth about what happened and sticking up for America. You know what I'm saying? So that's all that is. It's not so special. It's not so extra. Mm. Well, Rebecca, Amy, thank you so much for joining us. No problem. Thank you. And we'll be back with more Rising right after this. Galen Maxwell reportedly filed over 100 complaints Regarding prison conditions during her 22-month stay in solitary confinement at Brooklyn's Metropolitan Detention Center, Maxwell claims that while awaiting trial for felony sex trafficking, prison guards subjected her to countless painful and humiliating strip and body cavity searches and filmed her around the clock, even in the shower. In court, Maxwell has also alleged that her cellmate was offered money to strangle her in her sleep. Maxwell's lawyers claim the inmate boasted that an additional 20 years in prison would be worth the money she would receive for killing the disgraced Epstein associate. Attorneys for Maxwell argue that the grueling conditions of her pretrial detention should qualify her for more lenient sentencing. Maxwell's legal team also pointed to her work for former President Bill Clinton's philanthropic initiatives <laughs> as evidence she should receive a lighter punishment alleging that helping launch the Clinton Global Initiative demonstrated she has a, quote, desire to do good in the world. Yeah, Look, she should maybe be a little more quiet about that <laughs> while, the, uh, while the Clinton uh, hit squad is about, I kid, I kid, of course. <laughs> well, that's why she has 24-hour cameras on her. Yeah. Look, no, look, I, I don't know what that argument is. If, if nothing else, it's a pretty solid troll. I, look, as a leftist, I'm not going to sit here and, like, celebrate bad prison conditions for anybody um, and I your your sentence for going to being being convicted of a crime especially pretrial conditions is a concern because there is the possibility that people are not actually found guilty of various crimes so pretrial harms are, are serious at the same time you know I, I don't think that you know these conditions justify her getting leniency this seems like the kind of thing that lawyers are going to argue it's almost their obligation to argue it if anything this should draw attention to the broader prison conditions that yes. people who aren't famous and rich and have this kind of exposure have because again when you are convicted of a crime your sentence is time spent in jail not rape or torture or any of the other indignities that people end up having to suffer in jail right i'm sure it's absolutely miserable solitary confinement is 
horrible. It's miserable. It's done, you know, ostensibly for your own safety, mm. but it can drive you insane. It does. It drives many people insane. It's horrible. Yeah. So. No matter what she's done, as reprehensible as the things she's alleged to have done, presumed to have done, are, you know, you, like, right, like you said, right, dr being driven to insanity, being, being beaten, being sexually assaulted, we don't punish people that way. It's supposed to be humane. It's supposed to be, um, it's supposed to be rehabilitative, ultimately. Yeah, not that that's necessarily possible in all cases, or maybe not this one. Uh, it's supposed to be because she's a danger and it's punishment but the the punishment is not is not misery on that level and it's right. and it's miserable for everyone and it's it's miserable for people who are locked up unfairly people who are locked up awaiting trial right she still she was she was awaiting trial right. during that period so even if you think she's absolutely guilty as, as most people do as we do or i do i'm going to speak for you um before you're convicted of a crime you know how much horrific mistreatment at the hands of the state are you supposed to suffer yeah. And part of why there's been so much attention to, you know, misconduct that's happened at Rikers is because we are talking in many cases about jails and pre-child detainment. And when you have cases like um, Cleve Browder, you know, dying in prison for a crime that was minimal, um, you know, just, you know, jumping a turnstile or what have you, and then also being in these conditions which drive folks to suicide and they haven't even been convicted of a crime. It's like compounded thing over after, after compounded thing. And when you also consider that many of the people who are in pre-trial detention are there because they can't make bail. Mm -hmm. And the only difference between them being in jail and someone else who committed the same or is accused of the same offense being outside is ability to pay. That makes you feel like we live less than a fair democracy with a criminal justice system that functions and more like we're living in some kind and of And sometimes Victorian they wait over a year. England, it's not like they're waiting a week for their... Right, debtor's prison yeah. model, which yeah. is not what any of us want. Yeah, they, we have young people at Rikers, right? The Most of the people uh, being jailed in Rikers are there awaiting trial, yeah. sometimes for more than a year. Yeah. Sometimes they're young people. And, yeah. and you know, the longer you're in... The prison system. Okay, now we're not talking about Glenn Maxwell anymore. But the <laughs> but, is, but for other people, the longer you're in the about. prison system, even in that arrangement, waiting trial, the more likely you are to. If you're not a criminal yet, you'll be a criminal uh, because you're coming in contact with criminal elements. Your, you know, the things you have to do in prison to survive. The sort of, uh, you know, under black markets in drugs and other things. Um, you are exposure you are to COVID and right. other kinds of diseases. Oh, well, that there. stuff. You're Tuberculosis. More, you're more likely to emerge, if you do emerge from that. You are you are now more likely to be involved in lost pay and ability to go to your job and earn money for your family. Like all of these things are implicated. So I, I'm glad this has provoked this conversation. I I want. Uh, Maxwell to have the same kinds of rights that I want broadly speaking because I think what we do in our prisons is a reflection of what kind of country we are. But in terms of her specific case, I won't necessarily be no. shedding tears or staying up late nights thinking about her any more than I do about the two million people that are caught up in our um, pr prison industrial complex. Well, we agree on this one. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have more rising for you after this. Our next guest, Alan McLeod, did a deep dive investigation into Twitter's recruitment from intelligence agencies, including the FBI, CIA, NATO, and the Atlantic Council. According to the report, Twitter has been openly collaborating with the FBI to distinguish which accounts to suppress and which accounts to delete. Senior staff writer at Mint Press News and podcast producer Alan McLeod joins us to explain in depth 
Thanks so much for coming on to discuss. Uh, it's my pleasure to be here. So tell us more about your findings. I suppose if Twitter were to try to explain this, they would say, right, they need, um, they need security experts, uh, you know, people who know something about how to prevent hackers and, and keep people's passwords private and that kind of, kind of thing. You know, what do you see going on here? Yeah, sure. I think that's totally justified. Twitter is a company that's now big enough to really necessitate having a serious look at uh, security and cyber crimes and influence campaigns. And I get it. There are there's kind of a limited uh, pool of people who know about this. Some are in the military, some are in intelligence. But really, the scale of how many people Twitter and other social media companies are bringing in from the national security state should really worry people, especially as what I found was in the investigation was that um, they're really being recruited into highly politically sensitive fields like content moderation, security, uh, trust and product development. They're not being uh, recruited to become sales managers or um, customer service reps. So ultimately, what we're seeing here with um, the uh, recruitment of people from the FBI and other three-letter agencies is that uh, the national security state is increasingly having some sort of influence over the algorithms which control all of our lives and decide what we see and what we don't see every day. Well, what's the direction of that influence? Because I think you know, it sounds nefarious, but how nefarious it actually is really depends on what they're doing and what criteria they're using to delete accounts or to ban accounts or even shadow ban accounts, as some people believe um, they've been the victim of. Yeah, that's exactly right. From the FBI agent's perspective or the other three-letter agencies, I spoke to one uh, former FBI colleague who said that um, People were really looking for that um, that payday at the end of their career because they're not paid particularly well in these agencies, but they're looking to score a corporate job. So for a lot of them, it's just about making sure that their kids can go to college. However, when we look at what they're actually doing there, people in the FBI and the CIA, they tend to have a mentality, and the mentality is very much aligned with what uh, the US government wants. And right now, that's really a very aggressive, um, confrontational stance against certain countries like Iran, like China, like Russia. And we see that reflected in these intelligence reports that uh, Twitter keeps putting out. They keep finding uh, influence operations and bot networks in countries like Russia, China or Iran, but they never seem to find them in the United States or its allied countries. And frankly, that's because they're not even looking there. So we're in a situation where, um, where it's difficult to see what's going on. But Twitter openly talks about um, collaborating closely with the FBI, that the agency actually sends them reports and that uh, they act upon those reports. So there was a story a couple of years ago that uh, during the 2020 election, the FBI handed them a dossier and Twitter deleted a network of Iranian accounts that they said were trying to influence the uh, 2020 election. But it perhaps gets more ridiculous when we look at what happened last year when Twitter announced that it, it deleted 100 accounts it suspected from being from Russia for the violation of, and I quote, uh, undermining faith in NATO. Now, apparently that's enough to even get your yourself banned or shadow banned from Twitter right now. That is a very controversial stance because NATO is not an organization that should be uh, beyond scrutiny. 
Yeah, it makes me think of the fact that, you know, after years of hearing about uh, Bernie Bros, there was finally one article that was written last year about the K-Hive Army, which does seem to act much less as an organic uh, constituency group. Obviously, Bernie had a lot of support. Kamala Harris didn't make it to the first primary because she had insufficient support and, and fundraising. And yet... As a user, it does feel like the same accounts that had rallied behind Hillary Clinton in 2016 were being deployed in this new format as the hashtag K-Hive in 2020. You could definitely feel it there. There was finally some reporting on that. And of course, back in 2016, there was also some reporting on Hillary's Brockbot army that was, that was substantiated. It is curious to think that those kinds of bot accounts might not be investigated while certain others, because of their political valences, whether it's NATO criticism or what have you, are the ones being shut down. Do you have anything uh, more on the kind of censorship that is happening or not happening uh, on U.S. accounts and how how we should you know think about shadow banning? How does one even know that they've been shadow banned? Well, in terms of uh, shadow banning, it seems to be relatively common on certain uh, social media platforms. But I think uh, the main uh, problem is that there are these sorts of... Um, well, there are algorithms ultimately that decide what is credible news and what is uh, partial or uh, not fact-based. And ultimately, um, you guys will know this as you know being part of the media. If the YouTube algorithm decides that you're a great source and a factual source of information, it will promote you. But if it decides for whatever reason that you're being too critical of the US or or anything like that, it can decide to put you on the naughty list, essentially. And that can ruin media outlets, uh, entire business models. And so ultimately, these algorithms are super powerful things that not only decide what media outlets live and die, what accounts live and die, what gets promoted, what gets suppressed, but actually has a huge influence over the public sphere in in total. And so ultimately, I think it is really important that we look at who is actually making the decisions in Silicon Valley um, that really affect everybody in the world. A lot of people seem to think it's, you know, some pointy haired, uh, pointy headed bureaucrats sitting in an office in San Francisco. But what my research has found is that increasingly, these people are people who've been plucked directly from the FBI and other national security state organizations. And that means that we really need to scrutinize this a little bit more carefully. Well, on a right, and on a related note, you know, some of the really bad uh, moderation calls that we've criticized in the past, like the Hunter Biden laptop uh, decision, the, the the decision to suppress the New York Post reporting on it from Facebook, from Twitter. You know, these are these are examples where where actors in the government, right? We saw that the, that list of however many intelligence officials it was saying, yes, this is Russian disinformation. And then the social media company doesn't have to listen to that. It's a private company. It has First Amendment protection. It can do whatever it wants. But increasingly, we see social media companies doing what the government suggests that they do, like with that story or with uh, or with COVID, uh, so-called COVID misinformation, the lab leak, et cetera. But it's probably even more likely that a social media company goes along with the administration's recommendation or preference if the people they have on staff deciding these matters are ex-employees of the government, ex-intelligence officials. Of course, they're going to say, well, yes, the intelligence officials are right. We should listen to them. And, uh, and isn't that concerning? Most definitely. Most definitely. I think what we're seeing now in the past few years is an increasing amalgamation between big tech and big government. And ultimately, it's now becoming a little bit difficult to see where one begins and where the other ends. Um, 
Another example of this was uh, when the Trump administration assassinated General Soleimani, the Iranian uh, general and statesman. Um, because the Trump administration had put the uh, Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps on uh, its list of terrorist groups, it meant that Facebook and Instagram, which are very, very popular in Iran, were forced by law to suppress all content that was uh, positive against Soleimani or condemning the assassination, which was a position that uh, something between 80 and 100 percent of Iranians took. So ultimately, we had this crazy situation where Iranians talking in Farsi to other Iranians in Iran were not allowed to even share a majority opinion online because of something that was decided in Washington. And those are the sorts of things we really have to start thinking about. Companies like Twitter and Facebook and uh, Instagram are not, uh, you know, multinational corporations that just exist in the ether. They are very much based in the U.S. and subject to U.S. law. And ultimately, what we're seeing is uh, a sort of increasing penetration of their uh, upper ranks, particularly in content moderation, by the national security state. And that's something that it at least should be talked about right now. Mm. Very much so. Well, Alan McLeod, thank you so much for joining us. This is a really important subject that we care a lot about, and we appreciate your expertise on it. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be with you. We'll have more Rising right after these messages. Today, officials announced that Robb Elementary School in Uvalde, Texas, will be demolished in the wake of last month's shooting, with Mayor Don McLaughlin telling reporters, quote, you can never ask a child to go back or a teacher to go back in that school ever. Investigations into Uvalde police's response to the massacre continue to spark massive and justified outrage. McLaughlin says the city cannot release sensitive information related to the shooting at this time, claiming the city's lack of transparency is intended to protect the investigation's integrity, which is BS. He also confirmed the city will not release police body cam video. Also outrageous, yesterday the Texas Department of Public Safety strongly condemned the police response as a, quote, abject failure. There's compelling evidence that the law enforcement response to the attack at Robb Elementary was an abject failure and antithetical to everything we've learned over the last two decades since the Columbine massacre. Hmm. Yeah, I, there's no way you can mince words about this. There's no language that is too strong, not just because of the actual malfeasance, but because now looking back at those early days of disclosures from the Uvalde Police Department, it's just lie after lie after lie that they've been caught in. Um, there's a complete lack of confidence here. And I, I don't know how anybody in this moment could, one, be defending increasing funding to departments like this when departments who have had all of this funding, who have SWAT teams, literally stood in a hallway before a potentially unlocked door with full battle gear, expensive equipment that was life protecting and chose not to go in and save the lives of They should be like exiled to Antarctica. I mean, this is just so contemptible, so craven, so such a failure um, that people people died because of it. And, and again, they had they had the training. They can't say, well, we don't know how to handle a situation like this. Maybe you could have said that at Columbine when when there was uh, there was not the, the police waited outside. They, they didn't understand what this kind of situation calls for. Now we know yeah. we have 20 years of this kind of thing. Number of incidents we know. And they were trained. They were told, here are the instructions. Here's what you do. 
put your body in front of the bullets as fast as possible if you're the police. And uh, and and they they didn't do it. They didn't even they didn't try the door. It might have been door. unlocked, or maybe I'm, I'm not sure if we have confirmation it was unlocked. It very well might have been unlocked. They had that. They had the the shield. They had. The we shield. can see from the body cam uh, from, the, from uh, the surveillance, surveillance footage, footage. They had the shield. Yep. Um. And and there's and there's more. You want to read yeah. this new wrinkle? More horrifying details about what happened inside Rob Elementary School continue to shock us. We now know that Eva Morales, one of the two teachers killed, called her husband as she lay shot and dying and asked him for help. Her husband, a police officer for the Uvalde School District, then attempted to move toward the classrooms where Morales was trapped. However, other officers on the scene detained him, took his gun away, and escorted him out of the room. So he was doing what you're supposed to do, which is go go rush the shooter, you know, fearing for his his uh, fearing correctly for his wife's life. She died, uh, be, possibly because help did not come fast enough. I mean, that's the th like in this situation, the people in that room are shot and dying. Some of them dead. Some of them still alive. Some later died in the hospital on the way to the hospital, and they're just standing around. They're just standing around while while people who who had loved ones in danger, like that police officer, like the parents outside, tried to help, and and the, and then the the on scene commander and, and others like, no, 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 we got this, but they didn't get it. Yeah, to the extent that any of these law enforcement officers de deserved a presumption of good faith, it's long gone. <laughs> it's long gone. I'm sorry. And now we're inclined to. I'm, I'm personally, I'll speak for myself. And clients, I believe every bad fact that comes down the transom, you know, obviously, you know, in my personal right. capacity, not here, because so far, pretty much every every one of them has borne fruit. Every trickle of new information that yes. makes the cops look very, very bad has borne fruit. And frankly, when I go back to our first days of coverage and look at all the benefit of the doubt we are extending to the cops, I'm, I'm almost embarrassed by it because they didn't earn it. And in fact, I don't know, it would be hard to, to design a worse outcome than this. It would, it, you wouldn't believe it. You wouldn't believe failure on this level was possible. Uh, it, it's just, I mean, there's not, uh, we, we don't have the right framework to punish this level of wrongdoing. I'd like, they, again, they should be exiled to Antarctica or something. They yeah, I, I wonder to... if we're going to start to hear from, from folks um, <laughs> well, what like if this you're, If you're this police officer who was held back, whose wife died, yeah. possibly because you couldn't get to her fast enough and you were held back, I mean, how do you even like recover psychologically from something like that? Because there's, I mean, there's probably just... there's this element of okay, fine, I'll trust the authority figures, I'll trust the members of my own department. I understand. You know, you could think to yourself, I understand that there are protocol and that I could actually disrupt the efforts mm -hmm. to save these folks if I were to rush in and become a distraction. Okay, so fine, I'll let them to it. But that's to me the real tragedy of this: the idea that people right. who were willing to do the brave thing deferred to the police officers, deferred to the authority, believing them when they said that they had it. Right. And then to be confronted with that footage and, of them and, standing around in the hallway. Every rush in and attack the shooter is actually the right thing to do. It's actually what the recommendation is. The recommendation is not, okay, let's take our time. Let's get this right. Let's take stock of the situation. Let's make sure we got all the gear. Is that door locked? Well, let's get a key in here just in case. Do we have, do we have snipers? Do we have more body armor? Do we have more shields? Do we have more backup? Do we have more people? That is not what you're supposed to do. 
That's not what you're supposed to do. And, and, they, and then they try, they try to re, they try to call to him. They try to you don't you can't reason with this per, this kind of person in this scenario. Right, the, it's the, never the part been shown. Where they, they asked the student to speak oh, they asked up. The students, are the, you still? And the student called out, and then that student got shot as a consequence. You know, which is like all against protocol uh, to ask the students to vocalize. You know, I, I, I don't I don't know, man. Real bad. Yeah, and, what and can you say? What, you know, like what is left to be yeah. said? And we're going to keep hearing more because I suspect we're going to hear more from family members. Uh, more details will emerge. Mm-hmm. I, I'm especially interested to hear from this um, widow cop because he probably has some significant insights into what's going on in the department. Mm-hmm. And frankly, the fact that there were so many people on the scene and the uniform response, you know, that, that all of these police officers basically apparently followed their order not to go into the room. It, it almost feels like a Milgram experiment situation mm-hmm. where, you know, there was there's somebody who authoritatively must have been saying, like, don't do the obvious thing that we should do. And I know that people have to be really, really wrestling with their own personal demons as they question why it's what seems so clear at, at the time in retrospect, Monday morning quarterbacking was in the course of action. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we will continue to cover this story as details emerge. Uh, we're horrified for, for whatever is next, but yeah. uh, we will cover it, whatever it is. And we'll have more rising for you after this. The Supreme Court has ruled that Maine violated the Constitution when it refused to make public funding available for students to attend schools that provide religious instruction. The opinion, given by Chief Justice Roberts, provided a clear sentiment that when state and local governments choose to subsidize private schools, they must allow families to use taxpayer funds to pay for religious schools. Justice Sonia Sotomayor came out against the ruling, accusing conservatives on the court of attempting to end the separation between church and state. She wrote in her dissent, In just a few years, the court has upended constitutional doctrine, shifting from a rule that permits states to decline to fund religious organizations to one that requires states in many circumstances to subsidize religious indoctrination with taxpayer dollars. Twitter user Lawboy writes, This case is even worse than it looks. In response to desegregation, conservatives began to build a network of private religious schools absorbing public funds, but not subject to the rules governing public education. This is part of that effort. Robbie, I suspect you said you we're going have... to disagree massively on yeah, this so one. Yeah, so what's your issue here? Why do you not have the, these establishment clause concerns? No, I, I think uh, that it is perfectly fine to fund religious education, uh, that the education dollars, should, as a matter of policy, I, the well, constitutional question. But that's not what the, the case says. The, the state actually is able to and has been funding uh, religious right. uh, education. The rule was that uh, the Maine was funding these schools, but they, and, and they may be affiliated with or even run by religious organizations, but their actual curricula just had to align with state standards. Two families challenged that limitation. And, and before recently, that claim would have been, this is according to an article in, this, in Slate, would have been laughed out of court because SCOTUS only permitted states to subsidize religious schools beginning in 2002. Now it's saying that if the state says it wants to have any standards, this is for, from, a, from a libertarian, the state has now said that it wants to have standards about what kind of curriculum is happening in these religiously funded schools. And that's what's, what was at issue right, in this case. Right, it can't do that. Right, so you don't think that the the federal government sending federal dollars to kids to sending parents dollars, who want to your dollars yeah, yeah who parents who want to because they're in these rural parts of Maine completely understandable have access to schools that aren't necessarily the public schools that right. don't 
provide sufficient support to their community, should at least adhere to the same kind of federal standards that happen in, that are promulgated. They have to be accredited. They have to be legitimate schools. Well, no, the the argument here is that they should have to give a secular education and not a purely religious education. That's the standard, that the government shouldn't be paying for kids to get a religious education. How is that? It's paying for them to get whatever education their families, the kids, think is in their best interest. Well, the argument. We are publicly funding education, but we don't need to have education provided by the government. We can let. We but can this let is a million flowers bloom. No, it's that's, funded that's the by the government. It's so funded, by, it's funded by you and let by me your ask tax you this, dollars. Uh, Robbie, should the government fund a public school devoting, devoted to. Uh, drag performances and which educates kids exclusively on CRT and uh, hormone replacement therapy, gender affirming therapy. I think the family should get the money and can use that money toward their child's education for whatever education they okay, think is so, best. And if so some when, liberal family thinks that education so is when, best and that school okay. meets accreditation standards, so that the, is perfectly fine. So when the Church with of me. Satan drag school opens in rural Maine or whatever, whatever fear mongering. Liberals don't understand what we actually think. Your terms are acceptable. Yes, no, absolutely. No, fine. your terms, Robbie, perhaps because you're a libertarian, you're willing to take mm-hmm. this line, but you know very well that this is a context dependent outcome and that the whole problem with these establishment law cases is that they have to pick and choose which religions and which beliefs are legitimate and which aren't. That's exactly... That's why, that's why separating minute, religion minute, from minute, all minute, other kinds of belief doesn't make that, any sense. That is exactly the scenario the founding fathers intended to avoid. You should not be establishing one religion over the other. And because you cannot get in this game They're not establishing This is not that, establishing one over the other. They're saying if it's religion, doesn't it's, matter. It's saying the state no. can't make a choice to, to decide what kinds of institutions, to set exactly. any standard for what institutions get funded by federal tax dollars. Right. And I think that in any other context, people under, would believe that there has to be some basic educational standard that's in place. You wouldn't There has say, to be a basic educational standard because it has to meet school accreditation But it standards. doesn't. It can't not be a it school. It doesn't. The, what the, well, it can't schools, not be a school to, in, in order these to... These schools be, are no longer required to give a secular education. That means the school can sit there and that's teach not the same as that I'm dinosaurs saying. lived at the same time as man uh, and that, you know... Uh, Jesus, whatever, right. whatever religious tradition you have, is the, whether you're Muslim, it could be Muslim, or Jewish, it could be Jewish, or Hindu, could be, yeah. or what have you, or the yeah. Church of the Spaghetti Monster. Yeah, that's the school fine. can say, "Well, the Spaghetti Monster people, the Church of Satan, we this is what we believe." And we're I have no give, fear of the Church of Satan. We're gonna give, we're gonna give instruction in this kind of. Thing. And right. regardless if, if there's math or discipline, you have conservatives all over the country upset because math is somehow being CRT'd and math is right. racist and all of that. Fine. I grant they're you. They're upset because there's no alternative. Uh, there's upset because no, no, you no. liberals that's have said this upset. is universally what the only curriculum can that's, be and should that's be. That's not at all what's happening, Rob. I'm saying it let's is, just de- we can de-escalate this happening. battle. Instead of having this intense culture war over what all schools are forced to teach, we can de-escalate by saying, you know what? You and your family can choose the right. school that and aligns with you, no, and that's great. And you and your family can do that. We don't fine. need to battle each other anymore. We don't need to decide this. Robbie, uh, as a libertarian, that choice is fine. But you cannot then say, I'm a libertarian. I want people independently to make their own kind of choices mm-hmm. and go to whatever school they want. And then say, also, though, I'm going to co-opt federal tax dollars to support schools without any kind of basic secular educational standard, explicitly by saying that they can promulgate a religious and exclusively religious without a secular standard for education. They are saying tax dollars are establishing religious doctrine in an educational context. I don't understand. Look, I have no problem. That's fine. If, if Maine wants, Maine here, let, let's really, really be clear about what's happening. Maine 
fully did and has been doing funding for religious institutions, religious schools. Mm -hmm. That's not the issue. This isn't big, bad liberals saying, oh my gosh, I don't want Catholic schools or whatever to be funded. The government has been doing that and Maine has been doing that. The question is whether or not they should have to provide a basic secular education standard if they are going to take federal funds. I have a hard time understanding why that's objectionable. That, you mean they, the, if they're, they can, they should be able to take the, the fund, the, it, it, it's our money. It, it's letting it, the, the people take the money that comes from their taxes that the government confiscates to provide an education and saying they can use that to get the educational environment that best fits their needs. And if that's a religious environment, what do you mean like secular standards? Like they still teach, they have to meet the accreditation standards to be a school. You can't just like send, you can't send your kids to a school that doesn't meet accreditation standards, period. I, 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 I don't know what that means. All I know is that apparently these parents were so upset by like the, if you want to homeschool your kids, idea. you have to meet certain requirements. Even the these parents were so upset. The people who brought this case right. were so upset about whatever these basic secular education standards are that they took this case to the Supreme Court. So that's what's at issue here. There's no there, this is not. And, and from a federalism perspective, from a state's rights perspective, it is very curious to me that conservatives wouldn't question why you have a state, a conservative state. That has decided they can't discriminate against religious belief. No, that's what they're saying. Before it's before 2002, states weren't even permitted to fund religious institutions. Right now, the pendulum has swung and said, "Okay, you can do it because there's." I a, hope it keeps there's, swinging. There's a basic acknowledgement that the public education system isn't sufficiently serving kids in this country. Fair enough. I would argue that, as for a host of reasons, including as we mentioned in the in the read at the top that a lot of money was pulled out of the public edu education system during white flight. When desegregation happened, schools were integrated and so many white families decided that they were gonna take their tax dollars and run rather than have their kids go to school with black kids. I mean, that's just the history of how we got this massive public, uh, private education system that didn't used to exist before. Americans used to realize that we really valued and we're very proud of our public education system before everyone was equally served if by If the it. public education system is meeting families' needs, they can, in, they can go that route. If it's not, they should be able to... Where your, your zip code should not determine what school you have to go to. You should just right. get that money and, and do what's best for you in, in consultation with your family. So, school, again, it is, you know, Maine has mm -hmm. been, and you are allowed, permitted to subsidize, the, the state subsidizes religious institutions, Right. That, but this is a, court, a radical theory about. to a new extreme. Ordering Maine. No, this case is about ordering Maine. Not to, that Maine has the choice to fund right. religious institutions. This is a, right. like a federalism issue. Should it, should They're a saying it violates, it's discriminatory forced, against religion for them to not right. set aside funds for this kind so of I, I, I'm very interested That's to see. I personally am a subscriber to the Church of the Spaghetti Monster. So what if, that, if Maine I, had said you can use this money on any school but not a Muslim school? Mm-hmm. Now they can't because of the Supreme Court decision. Well, the Supreme Court decision is saying, no, you can't discriminate no. against religious belief, if, which if, I no, applaud. If, I, and I, it should, you school, should absolutely be able to take no, the public money and no, get a, a, no, Robbie, a Muslim. As, as I'm reading this, the issue is that if the Muslim school has a secular education opportunity, like many Catholic schools do and like many of these schools do, then it's not an issue. You cannot, you cannot withhold. Say that again. You cannot withhold. What do you mean the, a secular education opportunity? 
Carson if, if Challenge is made its effort to provide school, quality civic education to... to every child in the state. The government created a tuition assistance program to help families who live in remote, sparsely populated regions without any public schools. Under the program, parents can send their kids to certain private schools, and the state covers the cost of tuition. Right. To qualify, these schools much, must give students a secular education. They may be affiliated with or even run by a religious organization, but their actual curriculum must ally with secular states. Well, they all get a secular education. I mean, the math does not have a religious Evidently component, not, Robbie. right? Evidently not. And that's, and that's what's at issue here. So you cannot discriminate against a school because it's a Christian school or a Muslim school right. or a Jewish school. But you can discriminate against them based, based on their not rising to the basic curriculum responsibility. And I think you shouldn't be able to do that. And the Supreme Court agrees with me. So it's, there was a, a Muslim school uh, associ a group, advocacy group, that was part of the people filing suit here because they wanted yeah, to not. Yeah, I don't, I mean, yeah. my grandfather was Muslim. I'm certainly not, this isn't about me picking and choosing religions. My whole point is that the state shouldn't be in the business of having to decide one day that it doesn't want to fund the Spaghetti Monsters pole dancing class for kids which I know that many conservatives and many liberals would have an issue See, I don't with. have this battle anymore. That's fine. Yeah, that, you, you do you, your family do you, and that should be the way it goes. And we don't have to have these intense wars over it at the atomic national level if we can just let people be different. It's fine. And I think the Constitution and the Founding Fathers... Oh, now we're going to... Oh, now who's the strict constitutionalist? It's not about Didn't being you just the strict say the Constitution just gets in our way of doing whatever we sh policy we think should be best? No, I think that you okay, should let's decide... Okay, let's do it. better. You should look at what society is and what, what core values you have as a community. And I think one of our core values as a community is that the government should not be in the business of deciding which religions are real and which aren't, which is obviously what always has to happen when you're talking about tax breaks. Well, this gets us out of that business. There's no difference between religious what, practice or Robbie, any other when practice. You're talking about so you just have to, if, as long as it's a school. When you're talking about tax breaks for religious institutions or any other context where the government is deciding who qualifies for financial benefit on the basis of being a religion. Mm. But All right. Well, I knew we were going to disagree on this one, so it's, it's nice to get a, a real debate on it. So tomorrow on Rising, maybe we'll talk about this more. I think we could have gone on for a while. But also, Stephen Semler will join us to break down a new bill that could drain as much as $100 billion from the Department of Defense's budget. Licking my lips. <laughs> Be sure to like, <laughs> share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who like to listen while on the go, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. Have a good one, and we will see you tomorrow. See you tomorrow.